The Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes and their families since 9-11. Hero first responders and service members who serve our communities and our country. Those who die in the line of duty or are catastrophically injured. Veterans who fought for our nation's freedom only to return home, fall on tough times, and become homeless. Heroes like Buffalo, New York firefighter Jason Arno and his family. Arno was killed while protecting his community, battling a warehouse fire. He left behind his wife and a young daughter. In their darkest hour, Tunnel to Towers provided Arno's wife and daughter with a mortgage-free home. The foundation lifted a financial burden, enabling them to stay in the home where they made memories with their hero. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Support the families of America's greatest heroes, the families of fallen first responders like Jason Arno, plus Gold Star families with young children, catastrophically injured service members, and homeless veterans. Donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T, the number 2, T.org. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The CEOs of 10 U.S.-based airlines are urging President Biden to end the testing and mask mandate requirements currently on all planes. The call comes less than two weeks after the government once again extended the mandates, which have caused a significant impact on the travel business. So will the Biden administration relent or will they keep ignoring actual science and data? If it passes any indication, don't throw away that mask quite yet. Friends, it's time for Hold the Line. Welcome to Hold On, I'm Buck Sexton. Everybody knows that mask mandates on planes are idiocy, and yet the Biden administration has continued to push them. Now let's just establish, it's stupid on two levels. And this is very important to know, because it's always been stupid on these levels. Uh, it's not actually a masking policy. A masking policy would be you have to maintain your mask in a sealed fashion, if possible, on your face the whole time you're on the flight. But that's not what we have. In fact, when you get on a plane, as I have many, many times during the pandemic, what they say over the PA system to you, what the uh, airline attendants say is, you must 
mask up when not actively eating or drinking. So what this actually is, is a mask up between bites and sips policy for which there is no scientific argument whatsoever that anyone could ever make. You're sitting there breathing for an indeterminate amount of time with no mask on, then you're going to mask up. Once you're infected, you're infected. But put that aside, although it does show you how utterly moronic this is. It has always been idiotic. The fact that Fauci doesn't admit it's idiotic just shows you what a little fraud he and Walensky at the CDC and the rest of them all are. But then there's also the realities of the air filtration system on an airplane. Airplanes have HEPA filters. They have filtration systems that very rapidly, very frequently change out the air on the plane such that it will remove particulate matter from the air, including viruses. That's actually how many microns down the filtration system on a plane will go. So the good news is you're actually breathing fresh, clean air on a regular basis on a plane because of the systems that they have. Planes, therefore, in, in a plane environment, are safer from a respiratory virus perspective than bars, restaurants, offices, home environments, hospitals, you name it. But we still have mask mandates really only enforced by the crazy libs on planes and also until recently for four and five-year-olds in schools and places like New York. Well, that's because the libs are insane. Airline CEOs are finally calling for an end to the mandates. They wrote in this open letter, or rather this letter to Biden, now is the time for the administration to sunset federal transportation travel restrictions, including the international pre-departure testing requirement and the federal mask mandate that are no longer aligned with the realities of the current epidemiological context, uh, con epidemiological environment, rather. Okay, they are making the argument here that because things have changed, the virus is way down in terms of cases and hospitalizations. Now we can let it go. I actually think that that argument is not the primary argument here at all. This was always, always a stupid policy should never have been instituted. It was a reckless, idiotic move for this to be done for as long as it was. And what you really have actually is that on the airlines, last year alone, they had over 6,000 unruly passenger incidents. 70% of those incidents involved mask issues, 70% plus. So it's mostly people on planes freaking out who are angry about masks and not complying with the truly idiotic mask rules on planes in the first place. So I think the airlines have realized their staff doesn't really want to do this unless they're little petty, little petty tyrants, which there are some of those in airline attendant uniforms. But they realize that this makes everybody uncomfortable. It doesn't make anybody safer. In fact, it just raises the anxiety level for everybody on the plane. It is truly, it is, it is COVID theater. It's pointless. It's worse than pointless because it's actually harmful. It makes people anxious and uncomfortable. It's and a disastrous policy, a moronic disastrous policy. It should be abandoned yesterday. It should be gone. It should have never even happened. The fact the Biden administration extended it, little Mayor P doesn't know a damn thing about anything anyway. He's like, yeah, we're gonna listen to science. Bull crap. Get rid of the mask mandate on planes everywhere. Total failure. But they don't want to admit that they're not as smart as they think they are. And then there's the vaccine mandate that persists kind of in New York City but not if you're really fancy, important, and rich. If you're a pro athlete or a performer, here's New York City Mayor Eric Adams announcing that there is now a mandate exemption for pro athletes and performers in New York. Watch. 
Today, I signed Emergency Executive Order 62, expanding the performance exemption to private employer mandates. This is about putting New York City-based performance on a level playing field. Day one, when I was mayor, I looked at the rule that stated hometown players had an unfair disadvantage for those who were coming to visit. And immediately, I felt we needed to look at that. But my medical professionals say, Eric, we're at a different place. We have to wait until we're at a place where we're at a low area and we can reexamine some of the mandates. We're here today. Look, this is not about being in a different place. This was always a stupid policy from a medical perspective. They were allowing players from other teams and other states who were unvaccinated to play on the same court in New York. But they weren't allowing New York-based players to do it. It was so stupid. Indefensible. These policies are indefensible. No one could win an argument based in logic, reason, facts, and data about these policies. That is how stupid they are. But there's a problem here because while, yeah, I'm glad that Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, for example, can now play, and there are all these Mets and Yankees players who are believed to be unvaccinated, it's not clear how many, and they'll be able to play, everybody should be able to do their job now, irrespective of vaccination status. This is the problem. There's now a two-tiered system. People recognize this is all very arbitrary. It is arbitrary and capricious, to borrow a legal term. And Mayor, Mayor uh, Adams of New York City is trying to tell us, oh, no, don't worry. We're not treating them differently because they're important and they're players and all the rest. But yeah, he is. Watch. Currently, only non-residents are exempt under this executive order. We expanded it to residents of New York City. Unimaginable. We were treating our performers differently because they lived and played for home teams. It's not acceptable. I mean, he doesn't get it yet, folks. He doesn't get it. The whole thing was unacceptable. All the vaccine mandates were unacceptable. We'll have more on this with the First TV's Rob Smith and also the Biden administration calling out Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker. Hmm, we'll explain. First, let's talk about protecting your most valuable asset. Hackers capitalize on all the uncertainty out there right now, all the stuff being sent, emailed, texted to you. There are scams out there like robocalls, texting you for fake donations, but those are scams you can at least become familiar with. There's another scam that is really hard to detect and harder to stop, and it could even cost you your home. It's called home title fraud. What happens is the bad guy forges your signature on your home's title, removes you from that title, and then takes out loans against that home because he pretends that he is the owner of the home. This leaves you with the debts. Sometimes you won't find out about this until the eviction notice arrives. Don't let this happen to you. Visit HomeTitleLock.com, enter your address to see if you're already a victim and don't know it. It's smart to do this. Go to HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Rob Smith is coming up next. Stay with us. There's a battle going on right now that may be the most important fight our country's had since the Revolutionary War. Once again, it's about our freedom. People like you and me are being canceled. Our speech increasingly censored by big tech and corporate media. Can't let that happen. Time to fight back. Please stand with us and support The First TV. Be a part of our team dedicated to preserving the very essence of who we are, free Americans. Dr. Oz firing back at Joe Biden after the president demanded he, along with Herschel Walker, resign from the Federal Health Committee, to which they were both appointed by President Trump. Here to react, the host of Rob Smith is Problematic, Rob Smith. Rob, good to see you. 
Good to see you too, Buck. So what's going on here, man? Dr. Oz, I know he's running for Senate, and obviously Herschel Walker running for Senate. Oz in Pennsylvania, Mr. Walker in uh, Georgia. But they're part of this federal health committee. I mean, what's the big deal? Why has Joe Biden got to go after them on this? Yeah, I, I really have no idea. You know, both of these men are on the Council of Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. I didn't know that these were things that were supposed to be politicized. And I'm thinking back to the Joe Biden, the version of Joe Biden that was running for president when he talked about bringing the country together and when he talked about being the great unifier and all of these different things. This isn't very unifying at all, uh, regardless of what Dr. Oz's and, and Herschel Walker's politics are. Uh, what, what really is important is the fact that Dr. Dr. Oz is a fitness, uh, is a nutrition expert and a health expert, um, and Herschel Walker is a legend athletes. So I think that they would both have a lot to bring to the table here. And the fact that they are both being unceremoniously dumped from this position by Biden, who, by the way, has more important things to be concerned with, I, I would think. Um, it is just very petty. It's explicitly political. And it is very much the opposite of this sort of unifying candidate that he ran as. Dr. Oz added to this, if President Biden wants to politicize health, he'll have to fire me. Let Americans see how truly petty and political he is. I would think record high energy prices, a 40-year high of inflation, and the tragedy with Ukraine would be a more important priority. Dr. Oz, uh, you know, throwing the stethoscope down, so to speak. Yeah, and, and you know, look, like I said, there are a lot of disasters that are going on and a lot of fires that the Biden administration needs to be putting out right now. I'm surprised that they're not that they're even concerned with this. You've got these record high gas prices. You've got people feeling the, the pain of inflation everywhere from the gas tank to their grocery checkout line. And like you said, everything about Ukraine, it's just there's so much going on in the world right now. You just really wonder why this, why now? And I think the answer to that is that this is just another distraction. This is a way, I think, for the Biden administration to kind of throw some red meat to that far left base who knows, by the way, that their lives are getting worse right now. They are very aware of this. Even people that voted for Joe Biden, people that will probably vote for him again, um, know that their lives have gotten worse. And so instead of doing things that will actually make the lives of Americans better, he decides to be petty and political and play politics, which is all that the left does. Dr. Oz, he's a doctor, responded to the, uh, Joe Biden uh, on video. Here he is. I just received the letter on your screen. It's on behalf of President Biden from the White House requesting that I resign from the President's Council on Sports, Fitness and Nutrition. It's beyond sad that Joe Biden would politicize such an important issue like health. In fact, let me offer a suggestion. The doctor he should ask to resign is Dr. Anthony Fauci. I mean, you know I love this, Rob. Oh, I, I gotta love it. It's so, what I love about um, Dr. Oz and what I love about this new generation of conservatives is that they don't just take these things lying down. He actually the opportunity to respond back in kind. And I would say in that video, you know, Dr. Oz um, gave as good as he got. And I love how he made a little dig um, at, at Dr. Fauci there. And let me tell you something, this is a little off topic, but if Republicans do succeed in taking back the House 
in November. Dr. Anthony Fauci should be very, very, very concerned because they're gonna haul that guy um, into DC and, and give him the grilling that I think that he deserves. Oh, I think he's gonna resign as soon. He's gonna resign right after the election. You watch, just in time for Christmas, Fauci is gonna retire. He's gonna decide he's had yeah. enough if Republicans take the House or the Senate, which God willing, they'll do both. Uh, Rob, I'm sure you also saw the CEOs of, I think it was 10 major U.S. airlines are urging <laughs> Joe Biden to finally drop the dumbass plane mask mandate, right? Uh, the, the mandate for interstate travel on airplanes uh, that is supposed to expire, I think it's April 18th. All they're saying is, please don't extend this thing, man. There's been over, do you see this, Rob? Over 6,000 incidents reported so there's more than that, I'm sure, but reported officially of unruly passengers, and over 70% of it is over mask compliance issues. Uh, and airline, uh, the airline CEOs are saying, the planes are like the safest place you can be because of the HEPA filtration systems that are, all, that are standard on all planes. So people aren't in danger from COVID in, in planes, certainly less so they are in restaurants or bars, and people are really getting pissed off over this. So yeah, what do you think? Will they drop it? Um, you know, let's hope they will. Honestly, to tell you the truth, now that uh, we, we're following the science, we know that these masks, these cloth masks do absolutely nothing. Remember the studies that just came out that said they do little to, to nothing um, to stop the spread of COVID. And I think that traveling was never a great experience in the first place, but the COVID mask mandates and all that stuff has just made air travel so much worse. It has made people more irritable. Um, it has made people more violent, like you said, all of these thousands and thousands of incidents. And I get the sense that everybody is over it. I get the sense that the passengers are over it. I get the sense, even though I think that there was an element at the very beginning of these flight attendants and, and some of the flight crew really loving the idea of being COVID enforcers. I think that even they're over it. I think that we all really do need to get back to normal and we should make travel. We should downgrade it from just completely awful to only kind of awful, which which is what uh, eliminating these mask mandates would do. And then on the downgrading of mandates, I'm sure you saw, uh, Rob, that Kyrie Irving has refused. He's one of the, you know, one of the top players in the entire NBA, right? He's a superstar and he plays for the Brooklyn Nets. He has refused to get the shot, get a COVID vaccine, and they've made him sit out home games. He can play away games because other states don't care, but home games in New York City they will not allow him to play until now. The New York City mayor has announced that unvaccinated athletes, which includes the Mets and the Yankees too, of course, it was the opening season for baseball is coming up, uh, that they're able to play. Why isn't this just across the board though, Rob? Why, why is anyone now still under a vaccine employer mandate? Because in New York City, you still have one. Yeah, they still have one. And the thing about it is, is that during this whole COVID thing, and look, I'm glad that, you know, they've lifted these um, mandates for the athletes. I know that there is a, a financial and economic incentive in that as we head into basketball, or excuse me, as we head into baseball season. But what about the tens of, like the thousands of employees that have been fired because they refuse to get the jab, um, that have been fired because they refuse to adhere to these mandates? So I didn't really spend a whole lot of time losing sleep over Kyrie Irving. That multi-million dollar athlete who, by the way, still drew a salary this whole time. 
Um, I'm more concerned with the average New Yorker and the average people that were affected by these mandates. And nobody seems to pretty much care, like you said, that these mandates are still in place for them. So that's a really unfortunate thing. So I would say to Mayor Eric Adams, just get rid of all of these mandates in general. Just literally, it is time to turn the page on all of this stuff. It is time to rehire anybody that got unceremoniously dumped because they refused to take the jab. We know that, and, and, and this is not based on any sort of um, expertise that I have, but it seems to me, you saw Saki, she just got COVID again. She got COVID like three times uh, since being vaccinated. And I believe that Hillary Clinton got it again too. So it seems like people that are vaxxed and jabbed and boosted and all this stuff, it seems like they're the ones that keep on getting COVID over and over again. Just yes. anecdotal. Anecdotal. But remember, from 1984, Orwell, Rob, the final command of the party is to forget what your eyes and ears tell you. You're rejected. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's, don't ever forget that one. Rob, as always, good to see you, man. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Buck. It's been a grim month for Ukraine as Russia continues its assault on major cities around the country. So after 29 days of warfare, where do things stand on the ground? Vice President of the Heritage Foundation and retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano will be here next to give his analysis. Stay with us. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine began one month ago today, and the Russian military is marking the occasion with a major setback. Earlier today, a Ukrainian strike destroyed a large landing ship in the port city of Berdyansk. The ship was reportedly resupplying Russian forces currently besieging the city of Mariupol in southeast Ukraine. Two other ships were damaged in the strike and were forced to make a hasty retreat. The Ukrainian military continues to demonstrate a surprising level of resiliency and has reportedly launched several successful counteroffensives in the suburbs of Kyiv in recent days. So, one month into the conflict, where do things stand? Jim Carafano is the Heritage Foundation's Vice President for Foreign Policy and Security Studies. He's a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel. He joins me now. Jim, good to see you. And it's, uh, thanks for having me on. You have, a, you have a great show, and it's just always an honor to be with you. Oh, that's very kind of you, Jim. Thanks. Let's start with this uh, strike on Berdyansk. Uh, we saw the footage. We saw the video of it. Uh, it looks like an anti-ship missile that hit, a, I think it was an over 300-foot vessel, a major vessel, a landing ship, damaged two more. Is this an indicator of a, a greater capability among the Ukrainians than had been anticipated by the Russians? What do you make of it? Yeah, look, it's, you know, thousands of miles from the conflict, it's, it's very difficult to piece all this together. Or, you know, originally I saw some uh, speculation that it was a short-range ballistic missile, but that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me because those things are usually not accurate enough to hit a point target. If it was a something of more what's called line of sight, I can see the ship, I shoot at the ship, right? Um, so something that's more direct, I, I, I was more sophisticated, I, I would believe that. But um, there, there's no question the ship blew up. We definitely saw that. So, you know, what we have seen from the Ukrainians, and, and I do think they deserve credit for this, is, you know, we hear about counterattacks and pushing back and taking out generals and targets and stuff. You know, in the military, we have something called the high value target, which is kill the thing which bothers the enemy the most and makes it most difficult for them to operate. And so for some of these counterattacks, they're tactical, but it's very obvious that they're designed to prevent uh, the Russians from achieving their major strategic goals, or they're taking out targets 
that impact command and control, resupply, logistics, the things that enable the, the Russian army to fight. So this is a level of sophistication. This isn't like the 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 French underground running around before D-Day, you know, trying to blow up everything they can do and like throw spitballs at German troops. This is a pretty, there's a pretty sophisticated level of command and control here and and uh, in, and and smartness and going after the things that will make it most difficult for the Russians to operate. Looks like the Ukrainian military has also launched a counteroffensive and has reclaimed some territory in the suburbs of Kyiv, the capital city. What does that tell you about the situation on the ground up north? I mean, Mariupol's down the Sea of Azov along the coastline, a coastal city. Up north, the capital city, feels like something might be uh, underway on the Ukrainian side. What do you make of it? So I, I, you know, I think three things. You know, I, I was in Kiev a couple of years ago, and and I actually went to the Ministry of Defense, and they briefed me on their military command structure, and I looked at it, and I, man, it was like a, one of these Rube Goldberg things. It made no sense whatsoever because they were fighting, but the military really wasn't in charge because it was terrorism and not really a war kind of thing, and and it was just the most Byzantine command structure you could ever imagine. So a couple of things have happened here. One is before this war started, the Ukrainians really kind of rejiggered how they how they fight. And I don't know if that was external advisors or or what, but it's clear that they are much structured better to have this fight than they were, you know, a few years ago. That's without question. The other thing is, let's be honest, they would not be fighting if it wasn't for the West supplying arms and ammunition and medical supplies and food. That Western assistance and the fact that the Russians can't cut that cut that off. That's what's keeping the Ukrainians in the fight. And the third thing is, the Ukrainians are definitely fighting. I mean, at least 300,000 Ukrainians have gone back into Ukraine in the last few days to help with the fighting. And uh, so they have manpower, they have a competent military structure, and they have access to weapons to fight with. That means that I, I don't think the Russians can achieve their, uh, look, I don't, no, they have dem the Russians have not yet demonstrated that they can achieve their strategic goals. I don't see anything that suggests that's going to change right now. So these, you know, these guys can fight forever. I mean, the Russians can always go back, rearm, refit, come back. They can send in conscripts or whatever. As long as the West continues to supply the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians can fight. So this, the the shooting part of this conflict, will only end when the leaders of the of Ukraine and Russia decide. They want to stop shooting at each other. This is a, a baseline now. It's tough to get an exact, we, we don't have exact numbers. It's tough to even get a pretty good overview, Jim, but uh, visually confirmed losses of vehicles and weapon systems each side by side here. Now this may be bias in favor of Ukraine, but we're just using this as a, as a baseline. I mean, you see here 280 tanks Russian in terms of Russian losses, 600 plus armored vehicles. Uh, 580 trucks, 15 aircraft losses, 35 helicopters. I mean, assuming that this is even in the neighborhood of accurate, those are substantial material losses. Then on top of it, I think the Wall Street Journal today said the NATO assessment is that the uh, Russian losses in terms of personnel ki uh, killed in action or casualties is something along the lines of seven to seven to twelve thousand. I think that was the was the estimate, or seven to fifteen thousand. So let's just take a middle oh. number there. If the Russians have lost 10,000, they've lost this many vehicles, uh, roughly speaking. Is this, I mean, does Putin, at what point is it not worth it to Putin anymore is the question I really want to ask you. 
Right. So I think the real key metric is people, because at the end of the day, you can have all the armored vehicles in the world. If you don't have people coming out the back or running the tank, right. then you're out of luck. Right. So, you know, pick a number and, and we've got different number here, but there's KIAs and then there's um, wounded and and the wounded is wounded in action. But then you have also have to add in the number of people who are incapacitated from illness or frostbite or other stuff. We don't have a good number for that. And then I've never heard anybody give out a number on missing in action and deserters and uh, prisoners of war. So if you add all those numbers together, I think the number the number could be a lot bigger. And what's important is remember, Putin led with his first line troops. He led with his best fighters. There's a lot more people in Russia and Belarus that can fight, but the highest caliber are the were the guys at the front end. You know, this is like the you know the, the the best guys went to went over the top in 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 1914, not in 1916, right? So um, Putin doesn't have to end the war and end the fighting. He can pull back the defensive positions. He can dig in. It'll be difficult for the, the Ukrainians to root him out. They won't do that. Um, so it, there are two different questions. Well, by, can by the way, that's that's fighting? what happened in the in the Donbas. Just for everybody, it's been a, effectively right. a trench warfare in the east for like seven years now. Right. So he, Putin can fight forever. Can the, the other the flip question is, is can he achieve his strategic goals of basically make wiping Ukraine off the map, you know, having a rump state and then taking the answer is we haven't seen anything that suggests that he can do that or anything that looks like a game changer that can do that. So so it raises a question of what does Putin fight for? And just to a point, you know, people talk about chemical weapons and tactical nuclear weapons. Let's can talk I, about that. Can I just have, Jim, real quick yeah. on the chemical weapons? Because Biden, we wanted to have you react to this. Here's what Joe Biden said earlier today on chemical weapons. I want to have you keep going. Go ahead. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would, re it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross we'd make that decision at the time. Okay, I mean, kind of vague there, but keep going on the chemical weapons issue. And I mean, yeah. what, do you, what do you make of what Biden says? Well, I, what Biden just said was confusing nonsense. It's we'll do something, but I, I, I don't know what, which is not a very clear red line. Look, I'm obviously not in favor of NATO being the belligerent in the war. It's a Ukrainian's war, the Ukrainians are fighting. If, if weapons are used on Ukrainian soil, and I, and I think that includes chemical and tactical nuclear weapons, I don't think that changes the dynamic of what's going on here. Isolate, punish, and everything else. But are you going to become a belligerent to the conflict because that happens? I think the answer to that is no. The point I was going to make is, is military guys think in terms of fire and maneuver, right? So you, you blow things up in order to create a space to maneuver your force to achieve an objective. The Russians have proven unable to do that. They're blowing up things right and left, but they're not advancing. They're just blowing stuff up. I'm not sure chemical or tactical nuclear weapons change that. They, they can use chemical weapons, but I'm not sure they're going to be able to advance any faster. They could use a tactical nuclear weapon, but I think the Ukrainians will still fight. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure at this point how well trained are the Russian forces to operate in a chemical radiological environment. I'm not sure they're any better trained than the Ukrainians. So how do we know that half of the Russian army won't just run away when they see a mushroom cloud? So I would say, my from a professional military analysis standpoint that 
the tactical use of chemical and nuclear weapons in Ukraine would would not have any military, significant military consequences or changes. Now, that's not to say Putin won't do it. It's not to say he might not do right. it to you know, scare the hell out of people. But I'm just saying is, will it change the course of the war? And the answer is, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think we can assume that that would happen. Really interesting. Jim, always good to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Could another stimulus check be on the way? A group of House Democrats are proposing a gas rebate to combat high prices at the pump. National Review senior writer David Harsanyi gives his take on the idea we come back. First, I want to talk to you about protecting your online data. Companies promise your privacy is guaranteed online, but it's not true, right? You know that. That's why you need a new privacy and cybersecurity application tool called Secure. It's spelled S-E-K-U-R. Secure is using proprietary encryption and offers secure instant messaging and email. With Secure, all of your communications based on service and data centers hosted in Switzerland without using any of the big tech platforms out there. Privacy is a big issue. Without real security, people can read your emails, messages, even your bank information. Secure will never mine your data, never ask for your phone number. You can send emails to your doctor, banker, lawyer, or anyone with the total confidence you're not being spied on by your internet provider or big tech. Secure is the solution to this problem. It costs only $5 for the messenger, only $10 for the messenger and email combination package. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com and use promo code BUCK for 25% off. We'll be right back with more Hold the Line. A group of Democratic lawmakers are looking to ease the burden on American drivers facing skyrocketing gas prices by offering another round of, you guessed it, stimulus checks. Three members of Congress from California, Illinois, and Connecticut are co-sponsoring a bill that would authorize $100 monthly energy rebates for any month this year, uh, in which the national gas price exceeded $4 per gallon. The Gas Rebate Act of 2022 would work similarly to the stimulus checks that were sent to Americans in the early stages of the pandemic. So is this the smartest way to combat Biden's rising gas prices, or is this just use the money gun so that people don't realize how bad Democrats are at this whole governance thing? Let's ask senior writer at National Review, David Harsanyi. Mr. Harsanyi, good to see you. Good to see you. So let's just start with your, your take on, now we're just going to say, all right, we have inflation because the government has printed and spent too much money. So now the way to deal with inflation as it pertains to the price of gas, which obviously is not just inflation, there's other things involved as well, Russia, et cetera, but nonetheless, is to give people more money? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> I think you're begging the question, right? Um, yeah, I think it's a pretty bad idea to throw more cash out there. Um, obviously, inflation, inflationary pressures are due to, and, and the price of gas are due to numerous things, but certainly part of it is that with the government right on the cusp of reopening the economy through a bunch of money at people. Um, so I don't think it's a good idea for that reason. But another reason, I mean, if you really want to do this, why not just cut out the middleman and cut the tax rate, uh, the gas tax rate down instead of doing this ridiculous thing where you where you collect the tax and then send it back in a check. Now, obviously, you know why they want to put their names on these checks and, you know, it's the way to get votes and and to uh, to to pretend you're doing something. That's the first thing. The second thing, the third thing is why not just 
drill more in California? Why not open up pipelines to Canada? Why not ensure that next time we have sort of world event that undermines uh, capacity and production, that we are prepared to, to deal with it in a better way? I mean, um, Democrats, especially in California and elsewhere, keep undermining uh, fossil fuel production. So, you know, n- just doesn't make sense. Yeah, David, I mean, to, to that point, it seems to me that the Biden administration, the White House, the Democrat Party in general, really always want to have it both ways. You know, when, when the American people are focused on gas prices and, and also just how fossil fuels affect the economy more broadly, it has to do with transportation, has to do with products that you buy, right? I mean, half of petroleum doesn't actually go into cars. It goes into things that plastics and other things that people actually purchase. So it rises costs all around. So they say, and they'll have Jen Psaki come out to say, oh, we don't stand in the way of fossil fuels at all. That's not our problem. But on another day, they'll say, oh, my gosh, climate change is a national global emergency, an existential challenge. And so we have to transition away from fossil fuels as fast as possible. Well, which is it? I mean, literally every single in the past 20 years, every single piece of legislation that aims to you know, fix the climate or whatever is is meant to make fossil fuels be more expensive, to make scarcity, to make it harder to buy. I mean, every single policy prescription is about that. In Europe, you see it all the time. So it's kind of a joke that they pretend they don't want gas prices to be high. I mean, the first thing, I think it was the first day Biden became president, he stopped all new leases on public lands. And you know, the government owns tons of, federal government owns tons of lands, land in America where there's oil. And then the, and then shut down the, uh, the, the pipeline from Canada. I mean, these are the initial, the first, things they did. If you read his climate plan, it says that in, in by 2030, I think it is, you know, we're going to be have zero emissions in this country. I mean, these are not just fairy tales. They're kind of scary. I mean, to do that, you'd have to shut down modernity, basically. And uh, now, you know, they're pretending they want more drilling and more gas. But the, they, the things that they could do on private land, you see more drilling. But the things that government can do, federal government, they have not done. And, uh, you know, and and I'm not saying this is all their fault, but certainly part of it is their fault, for sure. I know you just wrote a a book, Eurotrash, about uh, people in this country that think that, oh, it's also better in Europe. And you explain, no, that's actually not true. European countries compared to U.S. states, um, you know, people are less well off. There's this whole perception of, you know, per capita GDP and and how it's skewed. But I I also think it's interesting that you have countries like France have been much more willing to embrace nuclear energy, um, which is a, I mean, if you want to move to a zero carbon future, there is a serious conversation that I think can be had. When I say serious, I mean, not insane. I mean, it would take a long time and it would have, you know, a lot, a lot of cars on the road still take gas. But you could talk about nuclear energy powering a whole society pretty much or something close to it. And yet in this country, because the environmentalists, including the ones that run the Biden administration, the ones that are in this EPA, are essentially opposed to it because they think it's icky and scary. I mean, am I missing something? No. I mean, listen, I'm a fan of fossil fuels, so I don't even pretend I'm not. I think it's the best energy we have. It's the most reliable. It's the most easy to, to, to take from place to place to, 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 to run society on. But if you want electric cars, and incidentally, there's like 1.3% you know, of our fleet is, I think, electric cars today or you know, the things we drive. But um, you're going to need nuclear energy because, you know, first of all, electricity is generated by coal and gas and natural, you know, and, and oil. And I think like 8% is renewable. And of that 8%, like 2% is so 
So, you know, this is just, it's just a fairy tale. You can do it without nuclear energy. And you're right. If Europe does anything better, particularly France, it's, it's relying on nuclear energy. Germany was on a great path as well. And then they, because of the environmentalists, they stopped. And then now I think 55% of their energy sources come from Russia. So this causes a huge problem for Europe. And uh, there's no reason for us to go down that road. I mean, uh, I don't think there's been a new nuclear license, though, for like 35, 40 years in this country. So it's uh, no one is, is serious about that, though, though we should be if we want to do, as you say, if we want to uh, have any chance of lowering emissions in any kind of serious way. It, it, it also feels like we, we've seen now what, what should, there should be a, a, a desire to make the necessary corrective here to policy, I mean, this just brings it full circle to what we started talking about, which is, so you've got the Biden administration, gas prices really high. There's a, an issue of production, right? Production and distribution of the fossil fuels that you like so much and that I like so much too, by the way, and that are actually the basis for a modern economy, as you point out. And instead of Democrats just saying, fine, all right, you know, they have this, now let's just give everybody a check until the election. I mean, it just seems pretty, pretty obvious. Yeah, it's even worse than that, actually. I mean, Biden's out there begging OPEC to drill more. He's going to Venezuela. He wants oil from them. He's going to Iran. He wants oil from them. Now, you know, oil is a fungible commodity. It's not like just because you're drilling, the prices are immediately going to you know fall. But it definitely matters that you can help control a bit more how those prices look. And yet he's done nothing to, to change policy in the United States. Um, but I think that these kind of shocks actually remind people how ridiculous those policies are. I think they support them in theory, in theory, right? But when they actually have to do it, they never actually want to do it. No one wants, you know, when oil hits like three, 350, people are like freaking out. What are they going to do in Germany? Oil is like $7 a gallon or something like that. I mean, if environmentalists actually had their way, and as you mentioned, it's embedded in everything. we The entire economy, just your FedEx delivery or, or your groceries, it's just in every, you know, embedded in all things. It's going to cost a lot of money and drive inflation, and people don't want that. So I think this is actually killing the green agenda in, in many ways, at least for a few years. Let's hope so. David Harsanyi, good to see you. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you. President Biden apparently thought the NATO summit in Brussels would be a good time to revive one of the big, big old Democrat lies out there. We'll have the video and the story for you in Quick Hits, among others. Stay with us. Joe Biden repeats a familiar lie during the NATO summit, you know, to take a shot at the political opponents he has here at home. And Twitter makes its final ruling on the fate of the Babylon Bee satire site. Those stories and more on Quick Hits. Let's, don't, let's jump right into it. Um, Biden was at the NATO summit and he decided to make this. At a, at a moment when you would think uh, there's a huge war going on in Ukraine, there's massive challenges right now in Europe. Uh, NATO is at the forefront of trying to help contain this and, and bring it to a conclusion in whatever ways that it can diplomatically and through other pressure. And Biden wants to take the opportunity to take cheap shots at his political opponents and lie about them. Here he is. Watch. I made a commitment when I ran this time. I wasn't going to run again. And I mean that sincerely. I had no intention of running for president again. And uh, until I saw those folks coming out of the fields in Virginia carrying torches and carrying Nazi banners and literally singing the same vile rhyme that they used in Germany in the early 20s, or 30s, I should say. And, um, and then when 
The gentleman you mentioned was asked what he thought, and a young woman was killed, a protester. And he asked, was asked what he thought. Uh, he said, there are very good people on both sides. And that's when I decided I wasn't going to be quiet any longer. He's a liar. That's actually not what the president said in the context of that the Nazis were good people in the Charlottesville situation. He was saying there are good people on both sides of the should statues be taken down arguments. He made that clear in the transcript. No person who reads the transcript or watches the actual video of what Trump said would believe Joe Biden here. But Joe Biden is and always has been a well-practiced and mendacious fellow, a liar, a liar. Okay, um, obviously I don't like that stuff very much when he lies. Uh, Twitter, which is uh, run by crazy libs, as you know, unfortunately, and has been for a long time. They suspended the Babylon Bee. What did the Babylon Bee do, just to remind everybody? The Babylon Bee referred to Rachel Levine as man of the year. Rachel Levine is a man, a biological male. Rachel Levine can grow his hair long, can change his name, uh, but Rachel Levine will always be a man. It doesn't matter what the left says. It doesn't matter what the system demands of you. But Twitter thinks that it can create its own reality, and so they view that as hateful. A statement of factual reality, Rachel Levine as a man, is hateful to people who run Twitter. So they have, in fact, denied the Babylon Bee's appeal over this. They wrote, our support team has determined that a violation did take place, and therefore we will not overturn our decision. Man, I wish there was a way that we really could just replace Twitter with something better and just uh, metaphorically speaking, as a company, burn the Twitter stock to, a, to the ground and just destroy that company because it is awful what they're doing. Anyway, Washington Post editorial out there. Because the Washington Post, this is, remember, not an editorial. This is the editorial board of the Washington Post. Uh, claim that Republicans have been worse to Katanji Brown Jackson than Democrats were to Kavanaugh. This is uh, just disgustingly stupid analysis from the idiot, idiot cowards of the Washington Post editorial board. They lied about Kavanaugh being a gang rapist 30 years ago when he was in high school. The worst kind of smear imaginable. They lied in front of millions of Americans watching. They lied in front of the man's women and children. It was a lie. That woman who came after him was a liar. The other ones who came after Kavanaugh were liars. But useful. Anything. Anything to protect Roe v. Wade. Oh, yes. That's what it was really all about. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and then there's uh, Jennifer Granholm. Clean energy. She wants to talk about that now while we have super high gas prices. Oh, that's going to go over well. Watch this one. As Minister uh, Ryan has said, this clean energy transition could be the peace project of our time. But peace always comes after struggle. So let's give this peace project the focus and the commitment and the resources of a wartime effort, our Marshall Plan. A Marshall Plan for clean energy. Wow, she's a lunatic. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is next. next. Shields high. There's a battle going on right now that may be the most important fight our country's had since the Revolutionary War. Once again, it's about our freedom. People like you and me are being canceled, our speech increasingly censored by big tech and corporate media. You can't let that happen. It's time to fight back. 
Please stand with us and support The First TV. Be a part of our team dedicated to preserving the very essence of who we are, free Americans. Born on America's darkest day of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes ever since. When a first responder or military service member doesn't come home and young children are left behind, Tunnel to Towers pays the mortgage on the family home to lift the financial burden. For severely injured veterans and first responders, Tunnel to Towers builds mortgage-free smart homes, enabling severely injured heroes to move around their homes more independently. Through the Foundation's Homeless Veteran Program, Tunnel to Towers is providing housing and services to homeless veterans. More than 3,300 were helped last year alone. Because all veterans who honorably served, whether in peacetime or war, deserve our nation's gratitude. People who put their lives on the line for our country and our communities need your help now more than ever. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good and never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of this country's heroes. Donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.